Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see you uh, through the video screen. And just wanna say happy Easter to everyone who is watching this video. It's an exciting thing to be able to experience Resurrection Day and celebrate it alongside our families this morning. And I don't know about you, but there's no other time where I feel like we need the truth of resurrection more than right now and the hope of Easter right now. Uh, and even just in my life, I don't know if there's ever been an Easter I've experienced where I've needed these words more than I need right now to know the hope of Jesus Christ. And so wherever you are in your living rooms with your family or you there individually, I just pray that this morning you would be able to see the beauty of the resurrection and the reality that our God is greater. He's greater than the power of sin. He's greater than the power of death in the grave. And he has the power not just to raise Jesus from death to life, but to raise us from death to life through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's good news this morning. And I think we feel the weight that, uh, in a certain way, that, that the Jesus followers felt on the morning of the resurrection before they found out that he was risen. They were in despair. They were in anxiety. They didn't know what to do. They were unsure. They were trying to figure things out. They were in mourning and they were in grief. And as a world, we're experiencing that right now. Some of you have lost jobs or you're afraid to get that call, trying to figure out what does all this mean? What am I going to do with all of this stuff? For some of you might have or will experience sickness in your life or your family's life or friends. You know, there's death that's happening all around the world and that might come near to some of us or already be near to some of us. We need the hope of resurrection this morning. We need to know that God is greater. And we can see that through the pages of the Gospels. We also get to see that this morning through our text, which is in 1 Kings. And I just want to invite you to turn there. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Kings 17 and 18. And we're just going to be reading through these stories that are here. And it might not seem like uh, a normal Easter message to go through 1 Kings. This is where we've been in our reading plan. But just reading through this passage, I was just encouraged and blown away at how applicable this text is for what we're facing today in light of the coronavirus and how applicable it is to point us to our hope in Easter, our hope in resurrection. And so I, I want to just kind of set up what we're about to read. So throughout 1 Kings, we're looking at the kings uh, coming after Saul and David. So the first half of 1 Kings focuses on Solomon, his reign, and for the most part, things are really good for Israel. Solomon's following God and, and honoring him with his life. But toward the end of his reign, his heart turns. It turns from God to false gods. He walks in disobedience. And then after him comes this kind of spiral and stair step down as king after king after king, for the most part, reject God, turn to foreign gods, and it begins just to ruin the nation. The kingdom divides in two, northern and southern. And especially in Israel, things go from bad to worse, landing us with this king named Ahab that we're going to be talking about this morning. And this is what the text says about Ahab in 1 Kings 16. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He goes and he sets up an Ashereth. Basically, it's saying all the terrible stuff that Jeroboam did, Ahab thought that was light. And he just continued to be wicked. And it says that he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of his fathers. 
So this is the setting. Israel's in trouble. Things are bleak. But in the middle of the trouble, in the middle of despair, in the middle of false gods, false saviors all around, God sends a prophet. God sends a man, Elijah, and he does it to show the people that God is greater. And that's our big truth this morning. God is greater. Specifically in these passages, what, what we're going to see happen again and again and again is we see that God is greater than these false saviors, these false gods like Baal that people worship. But God's also greater than the circumstances and challenges that the people are up against. And the purpose of Elijah the prophet is to go before the people and before the king to show that God is the one true God, that he is greater than any other God and anything that the people face. And you can see this most clearly in 1 Kings chapter 18. I just want to read these verses 36 through 37, some important statements for us this morning. At that time, the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, this is his prayer, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. That you are greater. You are the one true God. You are above all else. And that I am your servant that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. So this is Elijah's purpose, and even his name speaks to his purpose. Uh, his name means that Yahweh is the Lord. Yahweh is God. And that's what he's there to do, to remind us and help us to see, not just them, but us to see that God is greater. He is the one true God, which leads us to ask the question, how is God greater? So what I want to do in the time that we have left is walk through these stories and show how God is greater in four big ideas. And the first one is this, God is greater than our current crisis. Let me say it again, God is greater than our current crisis. That's good news this morning. I need that. You need that. And we see that in this text. These people are going to go into a time of drought and a time of famine. That's, that's crisis level. People are going to die. They are in need of help. And God is greater than the famine. We see that in two ways. One, through Elijah's personal story of obedience. And second, through this woman, this widow, and her story of faith. So let's just read this together from chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And we'll find out later that it's three and a half years that span these two chapters without any rain, without any dew. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the book Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook that I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that's east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So you can see what's going on. Elijah has done what God told him to do. He's told Ahab there's not going to be any drought or there's not going to be rain. There's going to be drought. And now Elijah's life is at risk. He's in a time of crisis. He doesn't have provision or sustenance. And two, as we'll find out later in chapter 18, Ahab is trying to kill him because he thinks 
that Elijah is the one who's causing all this trouble. So his life is at risk, he turns to God, and what does God tell him to do? Go to the wilderness. I don't know about you, but in a time of drought, in a time of famine, that's not where I would want to go, to the wilderness. And I just think a really uh, point of application that's important for us this morning as Jesus followers, as Christians, God often sends his people into the wilderness because it's in the wilderness where our faith is forged. And a lot of us this morning are in time of wilderness, a time of having to trust, a time of having to lean in, a time of unknown. And it might sound like a romantic kind of thing for God to provide for your food and water, but I don't know about you, I don't know about a bird showing up with meat in his mouth uh, to feed me, if that would be the way I would want to go about it. That's not necessarily a five-star meal. But a lot of times the provision God gives us isn't necessarily the one that we're looking for. But the time of wilderness is a time where our faith is forged. And you see that in Elijah's life, we've seen that in Abraham, we've seen that in David, we've seen that in Moses. Think about Jesus in the wilderness, think about the Apostle Paul. Often God sends people in times of wilderness so that their faith can be forged there so they can do what God's called them to do. We have to lean in. The second point of application is we have to lean in with obedience. Elijah continued to follow God, even into the unknown, even where the brook dries up, he follows God in obedience there. Same thing for us right now in this season where we're going through difficulty with the virus and all the unknowns. God's not stopped calling us to follow him in obedience, to pursue the practices, the clear commands that God's given us in scripture. One of those that we see in Elijah's life is this life marked by prayer. James 5 talks about this. I'd encourage you to go look at it. That he was a man of prayer every day and that drought held on because of his devout pursuit of God and obedience to him during this time. Are you, am I, are we walking in obedience? And this is a third point of application that I think is really important for us in this season that we're in, for those of us who are Christians who are watching this, is that obedience is never a cure for our current crisis. So sometimes I think we, we think that if we obey, God will take the crisis away. But verse 7 says, and after a while the brook dried up. Elijah obeys, but the crisis continues. See, obedience doesn't mean that the crisis goes away in our life. What obedience does mean, though, is that God is going to get glorified through our lives. And during this time when we're facing a lot of difficult things and decisions, we have to begin asking ourselves, are we living for the good of today? Or are we trusting God to say, whatever brings you the most glory through my life, I am all in. And Elijah was all in. I think this is what the Apostle Paul means in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, which is an important passage for us in these days. He says this, Now I'm not speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Again, Paul is in a lot of desperate situations, even more desperate than some of the ones that we face now. I know how to be brought low, how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We can follow God in obedience during the coronavirus because he is the one who strengthens us. James will say it this way, James 1, 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you in the time of the wilderness, ask God to forge your faith. Ask God to help you walk in obedience. 
And so we see that God's greater than the crisis that Elijah's facing. He provides for his needs as he walks in obedience. But secondly, we see that in a widow's life as well. Let's just keep reading in chapter 17, verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, said, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And so he arose and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord, this is important, your God lives. She's not a Yahweh worshiper. I have nothing baked but only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and son. Listen to this. That we may eat it and die. This is a crisis. A widow with no hope, no family, no means of income is preparing her last meal for herself and her son. And this is a woman who is in Sidon, which is important. It's outside of Israel. It's the northern territory. It is the heart of Baal worship. So Baal is the god of rain, and the god of rain can't bring rain. Only Yahweh is the one who can, and we see this drought. Now, God is going outside of Israel into Baal's territory, and he is going to perform miracles in the house of another god. Why? Because he is greater than that god. And so we see this woman, we see the crisis that she's in, and this is what Elijah asked of her. And I just want you to picture uh, the, the difficulty in the question that he's about to ask. Read this with me. Verse 13, Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as I've said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. Afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. <laughs> Listen to this, this is crazy. Verse 15, and she went and did as Elijah said. So she goes against all maternal instincts. Take care of my son first, take care of my family first. And she puts her life and the life of her son out on the line. She's not a Yahweh worshiper. She doesn't know God. She worships the false gods, but she does it anyway in hope of saving her son. A little bit of faith, choosing faith over fear. And this is what happens. She went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Can you imagine that? Man, just think about my house, the jar of avocado oil, it doesn't run out, and the gluten-free rice flour, it doesn't run empty. That would just be so cool. But practically, and just a point of application, this woman who doesn't even know God chooses to walk by faith and not by sight. Friends, those of us who, who know God as, as Savior and Lord and that he is greater, during these days of crisis, we have a choice to walk by faith or to walk by sight. I want to encourage you to walk by faith. Trust God with your life. Trust God with your family's life. Live for his kingdom, not your kingdom. Pour out for the sake of the gospel, even in the unknowns. He is worthy of that. And what we see is that God is greater than the present crisis. God is greater than the crisis they face. He provides for them. In the middle of false God territory, our God shows up. Which leads us to the second big idea. Not only is God greater than the current crisis, but God is also greater than the power of sickness and death. Let me say that again. Big idea too. God is greater than sickness and death. 
And friends, in, in a time where we are facing the coronavirus, we need to hear this now. So let's keep going in the story. After this, verse 17, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe, so not a small thing, that there was no breath left in him. So his illness is so severe that he dies. When it says no breath left in him, that means that his life had gone out of him. So in Genesis 2, God forms Adam and he breathes his breath, pneuma, life, into him. Ezekiel 37, he's prophesying to the dry bones. The bones rise up. There's no breath in them. But he says, prophesy to the breath, prophesy to the life. So when it says his life, his breath had gone out of him, it means he had died. And this is what the woman says. She said to Eliza, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause death for my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he lodged, laid him on his own bed, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself out upon the child three times, and he cried to the Lord. Pause there for just a second. I can't help but read this passage and think about Resurrection Weekend. Think about Good Friday. Think about the cross. Think about the resurrection. So this, this son dies. Elijah goes before the Lord and he cries out, O Lord, my God. And again, I just can't help but think about Jesus cry on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting from Psalm 22, we see his cry, but we also see his cry is to God. He, he recognizes that God is the one who's sovereign over this boy's life and death. Just like on the cross, we see that God was sovereign and in control over the death of his son Jesus. It wasn't by accident, it wasn't plan B, it wasn't forced on Jesus that God the Father, God the Son in perfect unison chose that death because there's a purpose in it. And then even seeing how Elijah lays across the boy three times, and scripture doesn't tell us why, but again, just thinking through resurrection, we can't help but thinking about those three days of darkness. Friday, Saturday, going into Sunday, crying out to God, asking for resurrection, asking that God would be the God who's greater than sickness and greater than death. And look at what happens in the next verse. Verse 22, And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. So we see several things really practically application here. First is this, that God hears. God listens to the cries of his people. God hears the cries of his children. I just want to encourage you in these days to cry out to him, to call to him. Let your pursuit of him be greater and more passionate than it's ever been before. But let it be for his glory, not just for your own needs. Bring your needs to the table. Cry out to him, but ask him to work for his glory in these days. Let your pursuit and your abiding be deeper now than it's ever been before as a follower of Jesus. Crisis and sickness and death help turn our hearts to pursue God. But secondly, just a, again, a practical application, God raises the dead to life. Just like God raised Jesus to life, God raises the dead to life. And he does that not just physically, but he does that spiritually. 
And for some of you watching this, this is what you need to hear more than anything else. God can raise you from death in your sin to life today. If you put your hope in Jesus, turn from your sin, trust in him, God can raise your dead heart, the deadness inside of you, and bring you back to new life in Christ this morning. I pray that you would do that. Pray that you would hope in Jesus this morning. He is the resurrection and the life, as, as John chapter 10 says. But then thirdly, I, and I don't want us to miss this, we see that God is passionate about people who are far from him specifically the nations. God could have done this miracle in Israel, but he does it outside the nation of Israel in a Gentile nation to a woman who doesn't believe. And the reason why he lets her son die is so that she will place her faith in him, which we see in in verse um, 24, that life in Christ is more important than life itself. And God cares about the nations. And again, just a really practical application for those of us in America, we need to pray for the nations that, who don't have health care, who don't have the money, don't have the means, that the gospel would go out, that hope would go out, that God would move in revival in these days, and that God would use us to do that. God is greater than the power of sickness and death. So not only do we see that God is greater than the power of our current crisis that we're facing, not only is he greater than sickness and death, but thirdly, we see in our third big idea that God is greater than false saviors. Say it again, God is greater than false saviors, specifically talking about the God Baal. So I've already mentioned at this point, he's the God of rain, but he can't cause rain. He's the God who lives inside him, but he can't save the widow's life. Well, now there's going to be a showdown between the prophet Elijah and all of his prophets uh, on Mount Carmel. And so in chapter 18, verse 1, it says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So in this moment, God is saying, I am actually the one true God. I am actually the God of rain, and I'm going to show that to all the people. And so for sake of time, I won't read through the next few verses in 18, but it sets up this encounter at Mount Carmel, let's go into verse 20. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people, and this is important, he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, if he is the one who's greater, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So this probably isn't the whole nation of Israel, but it's definitely the leaders of Israel. And it's all the false uh, priests and prophets of, of Baal and Astra who are there. And so this is really, really practical for us as Jesus followers today in light of everything that we're facing. Who are you following? Who has your heart? He says, stop limping between two opinions. Really, uh, this means two different roads. So if you can imagine a fork in a road uh, and one person kind of walking between one road, walking between another road, they can't decide which path they're going to go on. He's saying you can't serve two gods. You can't serve two saviors. You can't give your heart to two different people. If the Lord is God, you're going to have to follow him. In fact, Jesus is going to say this later in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Everyone watching this is devoted to someone or something. 
And during this time, our heart is going to be prone to wander, prone to pursue other saviors, security and economy and money and health. And right now, all those things are being stripped away from us to show us that there's only one true savior. Put your hope in him. But a second application is if we're going to live for Jesus, if we're going to give him our heart, if we're going to hope in him, we have to follow him. It's not just belief and mental, mental uh, consent or assent. It is an actual faith marked by obedience. You see, faith and obedience always go together. In fact, Jesus will say it this way later on in Mark 8, 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to come after me, to follow me, he's going to have to deny himself, not live for what's best for you, live for what Jesus. He's going to have to take up his cross, be willing to suffer, be willing to die, be willing to lay it all down, and follow me. Meaning, you obey my commands. You do what I've called you to do. And friends, you and I have a choice today. Are we going to falter between saviors? Are we going to look to false saviors for our hope? Are we going to look to Jesus? And if we look to Jesus, all of our life, all of our heart, all that we are have to be on the line to follow him. Would we do that? Would you and I do that? And so they decide to set up two altars. He lets the prophets of Baal go first. They put their bull on the altar and all day long they sacrifice, calling down fire, asking Baal to send fire down the offering. And they make this agreement, whichever God can rain down fire and consume the offering, he's the one true God. The prophets of Baal, they do that all day long. And, and this is the summary statement, verse 29. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. What sad words. But, but practically that speaks to this truth, this reality. And another point of application for us is this. False saviors will always fail us. False saviors will always fail us. They can't carry the weight of your soul. So when we put our hope in them, they will always eventually let us down. Who are you worshiping? Who are you hoping in? Baal is not able to show up. And one of the incredible things about this passage, the reason why it's a bull is because the god Baal was represented by the bull. So the god who's over rain can't send rain. The god who lives inside on, he can't heal the widow's son. And the god who's represented by the bull, he cannot rain down fire. False saviors cannot save us. But the good news is this, God is greater than false saviors. And that leads us to our last idea this morning, and it's this. God is not only greater than our current crisis. God is not only greater than power of sickness and death. God is not only greater than false saviors, but fourthly, God is greater than the power of sin. God is greater than the power of sin. You see, the real issue in this text is that the false prophets and the people of Israel and Ahab, they have all turned from God and they have turned to sin. And the power of sin has blinded their hearts and blinded their eyes from seeing the truth that God is the one true God, that God is greater, God is the one that they need. And now in this showdown on the mountain, Elijah calls out to the God who's greater. Let's read it together. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the 12 tribes of Jacob, whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with these stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And, he, and I'll just stop there for a second. So he's restoring right worship on the mountain. He's refocusing it back on God. 
Then he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two says of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces, laid the wood on the altar, said, Fill four jars of water, pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Then he said, Do it a second time. They did it a second time. Do it a third time. He did it a third time. The water ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. What's going on? He is showing beyond a shadow of a doubt that if God is going to do the miracle, it's going to be God. There's no faking it. There's no fooling it. He doesn't have a secret lighter in his pocket. He's going to toss on it. There's, there's no magic in this. For it to happen, for this miracle to come about, it has to be at the hand of God. And then he prays this prayer we read at the beginning. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and listen to this, and that you have turned their hearts back. See, the real issue is an issue of sin. Their hearts turn away from God, and now Elijah is calling out to God that he would turn their hearts back to him. And this morning, God wants to turn your heart to him and my heart to him. And for those of you who don't know God, don't know Jesus personally, to turn your heart to him for the first time. And this is what God does. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, but not just the offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust. No one's ever seen anything like that. And look at the people's response licked up and consumed the offering, stones the dust, licked up the water that was in the trench. Then all the people saw it. They fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Repentance. God is greater than the power of sin. God turns the hearts of the people. Then you keep reading through the story. Guess what God does next? He sends rain. The false God who's the God of rain can't send rain. He's the God who lives in Sidon, but he can't heal the woman. He's the God of the bull, but he can't rain down fire. But the one true God does all those things. Why? Because he is greater. He is the one true God, and he is the one who turns the hearts of people back to him. And all of this exists in your Bible and my Bible, not just to tell us a story about what happened in the Old Testament, but to point us to the resurrection to point us to the cross, to point us to a greater miracle. Those three years of drought, they may not seem to make sense at first. Why would God do that? Why would God allow something that would hurt people and harm people and leave them in harm's way? But when we get to the New Testament, we see that those years leading up to Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, this is what in Romans 5 it says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That everything works in God's timetable and everything works to draw men to himself so that, he, uh, that Christ can be glorified. At the point where the cross seems like the most senseless thing in all of time, God is working out his perfect purposes to save you, to save me. But God also sends the deliverer prophet. He sends his man into the middle of the mess. And what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus, he's not just the better prophet, he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. 
that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah will show up in front of Jesus because he's the fulfillment of all that. And Jesus doesn't just come into our mess, Jesus takes our mess on himself. He takes the burden of our sin on himself, which leads us to think about the altar and the sacrifice. The sacrifice and the altar points to a greater sacrifice, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins, as Hebrews said, and that Jesus paid the price for your sin and paid the price for my sin on the cross. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sin. He paid sin's price on the altar for you and for me so that we could become right in God's sight. But all this points to the miracle. And this miracle of fire raining down on the altar, God sent his son down from heaven to point to a greater miracle the miracle of resurrection, that Jesus didn't just die and he didn't stay dead, but he rose from death to life. And God has done that to raise you from death to life. And that's what we celebrate today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So here's what I want to encourage you. God is greater. He's greater than crisis. He's greater than sickness and death. He's greater than false saviors. He's greater than sin. He is greater. And he loves you. And he sent his son to die for you and rise again so that you might have new life in him. So if you're watching this this morning and you're not a believer, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I would urge you this morning to turn to Jesus, to call out to him, to cry to him, to say, please save me, to turn from your sin and place your faith in him, not by your own works, but by grace, a free gift of God. Say, God, I need you. Please save me. I believe in you. And even right now on that worship guide page where you are, you can stop this video. There's a button that says respond, click it, and someone from our church, you just fill a couple things out. We would love to call you and talk to you about how you can place your faith in Jesus to help you walk through that journey. We would love to do that. And then for those of us who are Jesus followers, who are Christians, brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you this morning, remember and rejoice that God is greater than your sin. Remember who you were before God saved you. Remember what Christ has done. Rejoice in that. Trust him in this time of the wilderness. If there's any false savior that you're limping between him and limping between God, trusting in this thing, trusting in God, choose to trust in God. He is greater than the things that we face. I love you and praying for you. God bless.